personnel shakeups at the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, Vatican mandates, and an ongoing financial trial. The National Catholic Register's Edward Penton is here with the latest from Rome. And CBS News Vatican consultant Monsignor Anthony Figueredo will join us with analysis. Then New York Times best-selling author Mitch Albom explores faith and belief in his new novel, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Finally, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on two important cases regarding vaccine mandates. What could the high court's ruling mean to you? Attorney and constitutional law expert Thomas Dupree will tell us. The world over begins right now. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. A great show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get started. The Supreme Court today ruled on the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. It was a split decision. They struck down the OSHA vaccine mandate, which would have affected any private employer with 100 or more workers. But they let stand a mandate for health care workers. Joining me now to unpack all of this, former Assistant Attorney General Thomas Dupree. Tom, uh, the court just struck down the OSHA vaccine, which would have impacted about 80 million workers across the country. What was their reasoning here? The court's reasoning is that the government exceeded its authority. Uh, the Supreme Court emphasized that government agencies only have the authority that Congress gives to them. And in this case, the Supreme Court reasoned the government, the Biden administration, exceeded its congressional authority, its congressionally granted authority by issuing this sweeping, broad employer mandate. The government just went too far in the view of the Supreme Court. Mm. Now, since the court rendered this Biden employer mandate unconstitutional, what impact does that have, Tom, on state and city mandates, university mandates as well? It doesn't have a direct effect on those mandates in that many of those mandates were, were pre-existing what the Supreme Court ruled today. I think what it will do, though, is it will give greater freedom and flexibility for cities, states, localities, uh, governors to make their own decisions um, about what's best for people within their jurisdiction. So in a way, it clears the space for local authorities to make assessments and potentially impose requirements if they think that it's warranted, given whatever particular conditions are in play in their jurisdiction. Wow. So this doesn't have any really local uh, impact at all. It's really it's it just defers to the state and the locality. They can still impose their own mandates. A lot of what this case is really about at the end of the day is who decides. The question of whether a vaccine mandate makes sense or doesn't make sense wasn't really the issue before the Supreme Court. What the Supreme Court was deciding is who within our structure of government gets to make these types of decisions. And what the Supreme Court said today is at least with regard to the employer mandate, it's not the administration. Mm -hmm. you, you were at the Justice Department um, or the attorney, yeah, working for the attorney general. Where does the administration go from here? Is there anything legal, any legal vehicle they could use 
to make it difficult for businesses to operate without a vaccine mandate or testing in place? I suspect the road that's most open to them at this point is to really go back to the drawing board and maybe try drafting a more narrowly tailored regulation. One of the things that really mm. bothered the Supreme Court was the fact that this mandate swept so broadly across all industries, all states, all businesses, or at least those with more than 100 workers, but it really wasn't mm -hmm. narrowly tailored. It was broad in scope. So what the Biden administration might do is to say, okay, look, we swung for the Fences, that didn't work out. We're going to try something a little more modest. Maybe they target particular industries where there are more specific mm. concerns. You have employees working close next to one another and that sort of thing. What the Supreme Court said today is you can't paint with a broad brush. If you're going to try to do something like this, it needs to be a lot more focused on the business and the industry at issue. Mm. In a five to four ruling, uh, John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh joined the liberal justice in upholding the mandate for health care workers. Now, they cite the Medicare monies uh, and then they write. And I want to get your thought on this. The secretary of Health and Human Services has determined that a covid vaccine will substantially reduce the likelihood that health care workers will contract the virus and transmit it to their patients. Now, my question, Thomas, is according to whom? I mean, the, the, the science on this has changed. Why are we making old references to things that the science and current events have totally superseded? Well, I think the Supreme Court justices would probably be the first to tell you that they themselves are not experts in this area, that they're not scientists. And what you see in a lot of cases, not just in this one, but going back decades, is a willingness for courts to defer to what they view to be expert opinions, in this case, the you know expert opinion of federal agencies. And so when you see mm. statements like that, like you know what the science bears out or what the empirical connection is between things, those are the types of things where federal courts, I think, view themselves as ill-equipped to second guess or to question. And so that's one of the reasons mm. why you often will see them deferring to those types of judgments. Wow. Now, th this case is still making its way. This uh, Medicare case, the health workers uh, vaccine mandate, it's still in the lower courts. That will proceed. But you believe, given this, that the, the mandate will survive review? I, I think with regard to both the mandates at issue, the broad employer mandate as well as the, the narrow or health care worker mandate, I think for both of them, the writing is on the wall. To be sure, the Supreme Court didn't issue the final word in today's decisions, but it made clear with regard to the employer mandate that it felt that the government exceeded its authority and that mandate will not survive at the end of the day. With regard to the health care worker mandate, they said that it will survive at the end of the day. So although this case isn't officially over, I think it's abundantly clear the way this is all going to play out. What are the recourses here for healthcare workers, Tom, who have religious objections, conscientious objections to these vaccines? Where does this leave them? Well, in theory, at least, the regulatory schemes allow for people to raise objections um, on various grounds and to try to get exemptions um, from the regulations. We'll see how that works out in practice. You know, sometimes there are regulatory schemes where the government is willing to grant good faith religious exemptions and the like, and others where they basically turn people away at the door. So although in mm. theory these exemptions are available, I think it's probably a little early to say how meaningful they will actually be be to people in practice who are wrestling with this. 
Yeah, there are a lot of cases out there. I know of military uh, men and women, uh, healthcare workers, university employees. So I guess we're going to have to wait for all these individual cases to make their way forward and see what the court says. Uh, any, do you see any direction given how they ruled in these two cases for how those others might turn out? I think the Supreme Court sent an unmistakable and strong signal today that when the federal government wants to act in this area and issue burdensome sweeping regulations, it needs to have mm -hmm. congressional authorization to do it. They're not going to infer mm -hmm. these types of powers, something of this scope, something of this nature. The court is demanding they can point to something in our federal law that authorizes this. That's the message mm -hmm. from today. That's the takeaway from today. And that's the rule I expect we'll see the Supreme Court applying going forward. Thomas Dupree, thank you for your insight and your analysis here. We'll check in with you Thank soon. Thank you. Thank you. As I mentioned, there is much happening at the Vatican this week. So we wanted to check in with Rome correspondent for the National Catholic Register, Edward Penton. Ed, Happy New Year. Thanks for being here. Let's start with the Pope's decision this week to move the secretary at the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, Archbishop Giacomo Morandi, out of the Curia and appointing him bishop, a demotion in many parlance, uh, to a diocese in Italy. Now, Archbishop Morandi was number two at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He's only 56 years old. Why is all of this such a big story, first of all, Ed? Well, first of all, Raymond, uh, Archbishop Morandi's in a, in a significant position there at the CDF, where he was the secretary. It's number two to the prefect. Uh, and he'd been there since 2017. Um, so. He, you know, he's quite an experienced, he's a respected uh, uh, official, he was respected. Uh, he was considered to be very loyal to the Pope, and he was considered orthodox, not ideological. Um, but I, but he's, he's been suddenly told to leave. We don't know exactly why, of course, nothing is official, nothing has been said uh, very openly, it's all very much speculation. But uh, there are links, there's possibilities that there's a link here between uh, the new apostolic constitution for the Roman Curia that still hasn't come out yet, but it's been in the works for, for over eight years now, um, and that's to reform the Roman Curia. And this may be part of that, uh, and it may be part of a sort of restructuring of the CDF, um, which could mm. could entail actually Pope Francis taking over the role of prefect uh, and running it directly mm. from from Santa Marta, and this may be part of lining up for that. Um, so that's why it's kind of considered wow. quite significant, but it could it could herald something significant in the future. Hmm. Now, Morandi's reassignment, as you mentioned, it, it's not been officially explained. He was simply reassigned to this Italian diocese. He and the CDF prefect, Cardinal Adaria, signed a response, a, a response last March aimed at the church in Germany, which ruled out same-sex union blessings. Now, the Pope also approved and signed that document, but it's received a lot of backlash in the media. Now, there's also been speculation that Morandi did not agree with Pope Francis's motto proprio, guardians of the tradition, limiting the traditional Latin mass. Any credibility to these stories? And what has been the reaction to this move inside the Vatican? I think there's, uh, from what I, people I've spoken to in the Vatican who who know this, know this story, they they, they don't they don't really think it's to do with the same-sex blessings uh, decree that came out in March last mm -hmm. year. They think it's more to do possibly with uh, traditionis custodes, this this uh, restriction on the 
on the old mass, which uh, which came out in July, and that I think maybe I don't know for sure, but maybe Archbishop Morandi uh, wasn't very happy with the way that was handled. Um, I don't know that for sure, but I think there is there are signs that there was problems with the CDF and the Pope regarding this document, um, and that's something I'm looking more into. Yeah, I've also read speculation that uh, Archbishop Siciluna, who, is, who served as the adjunct secretary to the CDF since 2018, may replace Morandi. Um, your thoughts on that? I mean, have you heard that reporting? Also, Cardinal Ladaria, who heads the congregation, he will be 78 in April. Yes. So Cardinal Ladaria is expected to be moved on or retire, rather, when he becomes uh, when he's 78 in the summer or even before. Um, but uh, but yeah, there is speculation that Archbishop Chacluna of Malta could be could be the next successor or at least could be replaced as the new se secretary to the CDF. He's certainly somebody who's uh, who knows the CDF. He is actually adjunct secretary at the moment, even though he's based in, in uh, Malta. And he was for many years the promoter of justice. So he had a, a quite a lot of um, uh, experience working in the CDF on abuse cases and uh, very much trying to bring those to to uh, to justice. So um, so, yes, he's he's certainly a, a favorite. Um, but uh, but we don't know yet. And of course, that's all all speculative. But certainly mm -hmm. he seems to be uh, tapped to be very possibly a, a successor there. I want to move on to another topic. This Wednesday, during his papal audience, Pope Francis had this to say about the COVID pandemic. He said, in these times of pandemic, many people have lost their jobs. We know this. And some, crushed by an unbearable burden, reached the point of taking their own lives. I would like to remember each of them and their families today. Now, Edward, last week you reported on how the Vatican's Pontifical Academy for Life uh, was pushing children to be vaccinated. The Vatican's mandated vaccines. In fact, people who work at the Vatican have been fired for refusing to take a vaccination. How was the Pope's message regarding those who have lost jobs received at the Vatican? Well, not very well, Raymond, at least those I've spoken to. Um, not many. I don't think any. I, I've asked, actually, the Vatican if any have lost their jobs because of these mandates. Um, and I, they don't they haven't come up with any figures yet. Um, but I have heard that. Uh, well, of course, there were the Swiss Guard, the three Swiss Guard who were forced to resign or they chose to resign because of these mandates. Um, and uh, but but I have heard from from others who who aren't happy with the way these these employment situations are being handled. They're not happy with with the Pope's comments. They feel that he hasn't led by example in this way. Um, and there have been quite a few uh, unfair dismissals over the past nine years, uh, at least according to those employees who've been dismissed. Um, and and then you've got these vaccine mandates, which um, which I understand. I think all of the Vatican employees now have either uh, taken the vaccine or they've had a health exemption, but uh, but many are not happy with it. Many consider it unjust. And uh, even those who, who are supportive of the vaccine feel it's an unjust mm -hmm. mandate, uh, especially in light of, of what we know about the, the virus now and, and the Omicron variant, which is which is considered to be very mild or at least much considerably milder than the, than the previous one. So, the first one, so yeah, yeah, there's a lot of yeah. unhappiness about this. Yeah. Yeah. Also this week, you reported that uh, Vatican Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Parolin has said that Vatican employees seeking an exemption from the Vatican's vaccine mandate because they oppose the, the link to abortion, quote, seems not to be justified. 
He went on to say, the Pfizer vaccine administered to the Vatican does not use cell cultures in its composition or production, but only in the preliminary stages of vaccine testing in the laboratory. On the other hand, other vaccines, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, are actually produced from cell cultures that were donated about 40 years ago for scientific purposes. Therefore, it seems that not wanting to undergo vaccination with this motivation of objecting to the vaccine's abortion link cannot be justified, since the vaccine that's currently used is precisely the Pfizer one that uses the mRNA method. Uh, what about the freedom of conscience here, Ed? Well, exactly. I mean, this is this. I think uh, quite a few people are surprised about this because even if um, uh, he believes that it's okay, that there isn't a moral problem here, uh, a lot of faithful do believe there is a problem, including, uh, of course, Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who's who's been uh, leading the way in this and being very outspoken in in saying that he believes there is a a problem of of conscience in taking this vaccine. Um, and and Catholic teaching does teach that if you think it's a sin, if you think you're you're taking this is a, is a sin, then you shouldn't take it because to do so would be a sin in itself against if you took it in um, against your conscience. So so it's surprising. Yeah. And also, I, I spoke uh, last October with Cardinal Willem Eick, who's a, a qualified doctor, Willem Eick of, of Holland. And he he was, although he's very favorable to the vaccines, he he was also supportive of conscientious objection and saying that uh, he believed that there should be um, tests, you should be allowed to, to at least take a test and the test should be free. But he wasn't um, in favor of the sort of vaccine mandate that, that mm -hmm. uh, the Vatican is now uh, putting in force. Yeah, Ed, I mean, I, I think an argument could have been made by governments or the Vatican maybe nine months ago because we knew so little and the vaccine seemed to be the salvation here. But given what we know now, the ineffectiveness of these vaccines against mm -hmm. Omicron. I mean, I spoke to two epidemiologists the other day. This thing cuts right through the vaccines. And whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, you carry the same viral load, and it's just as infectious. So uh, aside from ameliorating some of the symptoms, it really achieves nothing. It, it still spreads. You are, uh, you, your infection rate is just as high, and you have the possibility to pass it on. So given all that, I, it is curious that the Vatican is, is being so uh, determined and continuing down this path of, of a, a mandate. And I, I've spoken to sure. some employees there who are not happy about this. Yes, no, very much so. And uh, I actually have followed up with a couple of questions with, with uh, Cardinal Parolin about this, about the, the questions over the effectiveness, the transmission, and, of course, these adverse side effects, which are becoming more and more mm. apparent, mm. And uh, although they're trying to be covered up by, by a lot of the media. Um, and so I put those to him. I hope, to, I hope he'll reply. He takes a bit of time to reply, but he often does, so, so hopefully he will, mm -hmm. because... Uh, that, as you say, is is, um, is a continuing continuing concern of, uh, especially among those in the Vatican who, who have to take this vaccine. Given all these stories we've been discussing uh, and and some we're about to discuss here, what is the morale at the Vatican these days among those in the Curia near it? Well, I mean, Raymond, I've heard this from from various Vatican officials that it's um, well, one said that it's terrible, uh, another said it's the lowest it's ever been. Uh, there's a lot of fear around. Uh, people don't want to speak. They don't want to speak out at all. And and they say that that's partly because Pope Francis is very much micromanaging everything, and he wants to know everything that's being said, whether it's about him or, 
or whatever among the officials in the Curia. So it's really, um, some would say it's a reign of terror. That's probably going a little too far. But it, they, there's certainly a lot of concern there. And, and uh, there's a lot of uh, people upset about the way things are handled and managed. And just the general morale is very low. But, uh, but we've mm. been hearing that on and off for the last few years. But I do understand it's got a lot worse in the past couple of years during this, this COVID time. Mm -hmm. uh, the next hearing scheduled, you're talking about things being handled or not handled. Uh, there is a hearing scheduled for the Vatican's financial trial involving Cardinal mm -hmm. Giovanni Becciu. Uh, it's scheduled to resume on January 25th with witness testimony beginning in February. Now, the trial kicked off in July with 10 defendants. It was filled with procedural difficulties. In October, the court ruled that the office of the prosecutor needed to redo part of the investigation into several defendants. In your estimation, will this trial into financial corruption actually begin later this month? And is the Vatican equipped to even handle a trial of this magnitude? Yes, I mean, this is the, the big, it's a bit of an experiment, really, Raymond, because they haven't had a trial like this. And it's, it's called, people call it the trial of the century. It certainly is a big one. And it's certainly something um, that's unprecedented, really, for in the modern day Vatican. Um, and so it, it is open to question just how much this is going to go ahead. These false starts, of course, have not been very helpful. Um, and there's been mistakes made by the prosecution, the Vatican prosecution. Uh, and this is what's caused the delays. Um, but I don't think I've heard that the next hearing, maybe the next two hearings, won't be, uh, won't see a lot of advance, won't see a lot of things getting underway until probably the spring. Um, uh, but of course, the big question is how much is, of this is costing the Vatican, and how much is it costing all of the the people involved? And uh, it's it's a you know some think well maybe this is just being uh, played out in order to, to because the Vatican doesn't have many funds to, to fund it and eventually it'll just have to mm -hmm. to finish but I don't know how how true that is but certainly um, it's a challenge for the Vatican to 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 do this trial and to make sure that it's properly followed and everything is fair and those questions are still um, they're still open to question really just how effective this trial and how fair it's going to be but uh, but we'll find out in the yeah. coming weeks and months no doubt. Yeah, well, the credibility of it is is, is the thing that I, I keep, you know, scratching my head over because you've got papal interventions into the the rules and the flow of the the trial. Uh, mm -hmm. When the when the goalposts are moving and the rules are shifting mid game, it's kind of hard to to play the game fairly. But we'll see where this ends up. Ed Penton, thank you for being here. Ed Penton's reporting at the National Catholic Register is at ncregister.com, and his most recent book, The Next Pope. The Leading Cardinal Candidates is available now at bookstores everywhere, including EWTN's catalog. Thank you, Ed. Thank and you, Ed. here with insider analysis of all of this and more is Vatican consultant for CBS News, priest of the Diocese of Assisi, Monsignor Anthony Figueredo. Monsignor, thank you for being here. I, I want to get your take on some of what Ed just reported, uh, starting with that shakeup at the CDF. Your thoughts on what amounts to a demotion of Archbishop Morandi, uh, how should we interpret this change? Well, Raymond, it's quite normal for popes to move curial officials. It's quite normal for popes to surround themselves with their own men. And as Ed was saying, I do believe this is part of the larger reform of the Curia. Pope Francis did meet with Cardinal Ladaria in December. 
He met with Archbishop mm -hmm. Shakluna in December. In fact, he met with Cardinal Adaria again today. So I believe he does want a new um, mission being given to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Interestingly enough, the only congregation that shares in the magisterium of the Pope is the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So in a sense, it's not surprising that a Pope wants to have more say in that congregation. I do think Archbishop Shakluna will be called either to be secretary, perhaps even prefect. He shares the Holy Father's views on a number of different issues, certainly on the whole issue of giving communion to the divorced and remarried, and even more importantly, on the sexual abuse. It was Archbishop Shakluna who carried out the investigation on the Legionaries of Christ in 2005, mm -hmm. on the Chilean bishops in 2018, going back, Cardinal Keith O'Brien of Edinburgh in 2014, and he's been very much involved with Os Estis Lux Mundi, the new norms being drawn up to call bishops to account who've covered up abuse. Clearly, this mm -hmm. seems to me as if Pope Francis wants a man who's going to reflect his own wishes. He wants to surround himself with a man who has his confidence. Hmm. Uh, I want to move on to that letter that it now has been released that the Pope wrote to members of New Way's ministry. Uh, this is a group that over the years is very controversial, has reached out to the LGBT community. Uh, John Paul II, Benedict, the U.S. bishops largely and roundly condemned that group. Um, it seems the Pope has rehabilitated them with the embrace of Sister Janine Gramic and uh, Father James Martin. What are you hearing in Italy, particularly uh, among the seminary community? I know you spent a great deal of time at the NAC uh, about the Vatican's new attitude toward um, these individuals that it, uh, in previous days, their activities were considered outside the church teaching. Well, we certainly know Pope Francis's vision of the church as a field hospital. We know his vision of... Uh, the Most Holy Eucharist, not as a prize for the perfect, but as a medicine for those who are sick or unwell. Uh, we also know the clarity of church teaching on uh, homosexual acts. They are intrinsically disordered. So the very use now of LGBT to describe a way of life that is being given credibility even by the church, quite frankly, is very confusing, very confusing indeed. And we seem not to be catechizing the world as a church, but allowing the world to catechize us. So I think it's basically caused significant confusion. And you're absolutely right. It seems that those who have been put asked to step aside in the past because of the confusion they bring into areas such as homosexual teaching are now being given new life. And I think um, that, is a, that is pretty dangerous in the society we are living in at this time. I was speaking to a faculty member of a seminary back in the States, and he said, well, does this mean that our seminaries are now going to be filled with men who say 
while the gay lifestyle is being approved by the church. It's a big danger. Mm. As Edward reported earlier, Father, Pope Francis has given multiple indications that he's supportive of vaccine mandates, even suggesting that there is a moral obligation, uh, despite the CDF saying that there's not. Is there a disconnect here when the Vatican teaches that one can in conscience object to taking the vaccine, but then fires its own employees for refusing the Vatican mandate? Uh, and what do you make of the Vatican Secretary of State poo-pooing the demonstrable link between abortion and the creation of these vaccines? Pope Francis was speaking to almost 200 diplomats when he used that term, moral obligation. He did not explain what he meant by that. So perhaps it's an invitation for further discernment, further deliberation on, uh, on taking the max vaccine or not. Something that's very interesting, uh, Raymond, is that it seems to be part of a bigger picture. You know, we have the Italian prime minister this week uh, uh, mandating the vaccine for over 50s. We have the French mm. president who says he's going to cheese off. Uh, he used stronger language, in fact, uh, yes, the non-vaxxers in France. We even had the conservative British prime minister talking about the mumbo-jumbo of uh, non-vaxxers and the need to call them out. So uh, I read it a little bit like, there's a bigger picture here that we have these leaders coming through, including Pope Francis, uh, saying we're going to call these people out. You know, the, the words that Pope Francis used, in fact, and I have them here, he says, you know, baseless information of poorly documented facts. There just seems to be somewhat of a pattern there, and there may be an underlying uh, manifesto amongst European leaders, certainly, in, in the sense of, of a response to non-vaxxers. In terms of Cardinal mm. Paralin, um, you know, conscience, as we know, is a very serious matter. And positions based on conscience, uh, I think, do need to be explained thoroughly. And I, I think to defend Cardinal Paralin in some sense, you know, conscience cannot simply be used as an, as an excuse to escape legitimate commands of authority. So yes, conscientious objection, but let's have your reasons for that. And mm -hmm. if it's just part of a uh, move to go against authority, I think then questions have to be raised about that as well. Yeah. Well, uh, and Monsignor, the catechism, you are, you are uh, allowed autonomy over your body and your conscience predominates. You're not forced to do something with your body that violates your conscience. So if people want to not take a vaccine, that's their prerogative, frankly, under, to my reading of church teaching at least. And when the Pope talks about misinformed individuals and bad information, we know the vaccines have no effect against Omicron, against stopping the infection or the transmission. Uh, there's a new study out of England that repeated booster shots destroy your natural immunity. That just dropped off on Bloomberg the other day. So we have solid information from credible sources, not, you know, fringe websites or something. These are credible researchers, epidemiologists and esteemed uh, 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 research institutes. Those have to be listened to, it seems to me, at some point as well, and not simply uh, accept some old scientific belief, which is what it is, and make that dogma 
while we take dogma and turn it into some, you know, malleable thing. I think this is an excellent discussion we're having, Raymond. Uh, I'm just reading what Pope Francis said to those mm -hmm. 183 diplomats. He said, vaccines yep. are not a magical means of healing. Yet, right. surely they represent, in addition to other treatments that need to be developed, the words of Pope Francis, in this moment, they do represent the most reasonable solution for the prevention of the disease. I think what Pope Francis is saying is that they do reduce serious illness. So, yes, we do become infected, but the numbers, mm -hmm. I think, Raymond, if I'm not incorrect, the numbers in hospitals yeah. with serious illness is certainly mm -hmm. not what they were a year ago, certainly not no. in Italy. No, they're greatly diminished. Thank God for that. Uh, you know, as a, as a uh, mRNA researcher told me not long ago, this was an early Christmas gift to us, Omicron, because of the reduced illness uh, involved, even though it was much more infectious. I want to get your take on a related story. A bishop in southern Italy went so far as to bar unvaccinated priests, religious, and lay people from distributing communion. Monsignor, does that seem extreme to you, given that the vaccinated and unvaccinated alike, as we said a moment ago, can transmit this virus, barring priests from their God-given duties? It does seem draconian to me, uh, Raymond, yes. Uh, but I rather suspect that the bishop was acting out of prudence. Living in Italy, I do know that the state authorities, secular authorities, can be extremely harsh on the church. And they will lock things down mm -hmm. if they see the church not acting. You know, numbers are going up, they're skyrocketing in Italy at the moment. And I rather suspect mm -hmm. that the bishop, even though acting draconianly, is acting out of prudence to prevent further drastic measures coming from his part of Italy mm -hmm. from state authorities. I think we need to be sensitive mm -hmm. to that local authorities in Italy can be drastic with the church. Yeah. Uh, as Edward reported earlier, the uh, Vatican financial trial, the trial of the century, resumes later this month. How damaging has this corruption trial been to the Vatican's credibility in Europe, Monsignor? Uh, it's been reported, obviously, here in the U.S., but most of the faithful, I think, unaware of the depth of the malfeasance involved, or the individuals, frankly. Absolutely. I think the Holy See finds itself in a dead end here. We, we know that malfeasance has occurred. Something rotten is out there. Cardinal Paradin has admitted that. Pope Francis has admitted that effectively. I think the great difficulty, on the one hand, we have Pope Francis and the Church calling for transparency in financial matters, which mm -hmm. is a good thing. On the other hand, when that transparency shows up the Vatican, it's a lockdown. <laughs> we saw that with Cardinal Pell and his efforts to mm -hmm. clean up uh, the finances at the Vatican. You know, part of this difficulty, even with the trial going on, uh, Pope Francis is seen as the supreme judge. He's seen as divinely right. inspired. So his power, in a sense, cannot be subordinated to any human power. So there's really a big resistance for him being called as a witness in this trial. Well, that's damaging to the credibility of transparency, the credibility of the church as 
speaking the truth. And I don't think that's going to sit very well with temporal secular powers. We've seen that happen with the sexual abuse crisis. Someone as powerful as the former Cardinal McCarrick completely falling from grace and now being really subject to secular authorities, I imagine the same is going to happen with the Vatican finances. Yeah, yeah. And Monsignor, just so the audience understands, there are defendants here that claim the Pope himself approved some of these investments and, and the movement of these funds. So that's why uh, some are saying his testimony is important to the outcome of this trial. We'll see what happens. Uh, I, before I go, the Pope's motu proprio restricting the Latin Mass continues to be controversial. Uh, some prelates are asking that it be rescinded, Archbishop Schneider, uh, while others are implementing it to the letter. I'm interested in hearing how Rome is receiving this. Is there an understanding among curial officials and those near the Pope uh, how this is being received in dioceses and among the faithful? I had lunch with Cardinal Sarah today, and Cardinal Sarah, a saintly man who certainly will not criticize Pope Francis, but he raised a very good point. He said, I think there's great confusion where some of these decisions are coming from, and even more importantly, who they're coming from. You know, when the fruit is good, certainly in terms of the traditional mass, uh, why do we put the brakes on it and try to eliminate it? The same with uh, masses celebrated in the crypt of St. Peter's. Uh, uh, the same question was raised with Cardinal Sarah. And quite frankly, I, I spoke today with the Vatican official who has been arranging these masses and permitting them for some 30 years now. And he was almost crying as he said to me, the most difficult thing I have to do now is to tell a priest that he cannot celebrate the Eucharist in the crypt of St. Peter's Basilica, the mother church of Christianity. And certainly that raises huge question marks about why this has come about and who is behind these decisions. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very troubling. And of course, the faithful here are gobsmacked by it. They don't understand why this is happening, given, as you said, the good fruits that come out of those communities. And these are very small groups and pockets of uh, faithful who love the silence and the sacrality and the tradition. I, I, I'm not sure what is achieved by reopening these liturgical wars. But uh, again, another story we'll keep our eye on. Before we run out of time, there was an article in this week's Wall Street Journal reporting on the Catholic Church's decline in Latin America. Brazil is set to become a minority Catholic country by year's end, losing formerly Catholic faithful to conservative Pentecostals. All this despite a pope who hails from the region. How serious are the losses the church is experiencing there? And how great a blow is this to the church universal, Monsignor? I remember a cardinal in Rome back in the 1960s. I wasn't around then, but I've heard what he said back in the 60s, looking at the situation in Rome. Are we fishers of men or are we keepers of an aquarium where the fish are slowly and somewhat very quickly dying out now? So the situation mm. is extremely serious because it's not only a loss 
of numbers, but more seriously, it's a loss of the doctrine and teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And that has huge repercussions on the moral life. That has huge repercussions on what we hand down to future generations. In a society that, you know, has completely accepted uh, gay marriage and has completely lost, uh, lost the territories, quite frankly, on abortion, we're losing people whom we need to catechize. And I go back to what I said earlier. We need to catechize the world rather than allowing the world to catechize us. And certainly, talking with Cardinal Sarat today, he made a very strong point to me. You know, in front of synodality, he says, we need to incarnate the word of God. I mean, all this consultant jargon and corporate buzzwords about synodality, the church does not belong to us. The church belongs to Christ. So before we listen to each other, we need to listen to Christ and we need to let others know his teaching has, has been faithfully expounded by the Roman Catholic Church for 2,000 years. We do not need to reinvent the wheel. We need to give that Mon truth faithfully. Monsignor Anthony Figueredo, a great place to stop. And it reminds me of a, a, a scripture I read about the Israelites. And, you know, they went out to war and they stopped listening to God, but decided to do their own thing and they were obliterated. So uh, a, a great cautionary word in this new year. I thank you, Monsignor Figueredo. We'll check in with you in the days ahead. Thank you. Bring my next guest is the author of seven number one New York Times bestsellers. You may recall Tuesdays with Maury, which spent uh, a mere four straight years atop the New York Times list. Mitch Albom's latest novel, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, explores the question of belief in God after a yacht explosion leaves a small group of survivors drifting between life and death in a raft. I want to welcome Mitch Albom. To the program. Thank you for being here, Mitch. Uh, the, the plot of your novel, and, and I've read the book, it sounds luxurious at the start. A billionaire, Jason Lambert, invites some of the world's richest and influential people uh, to cruise in his, on his mega yacht. Then this mysterious explosion occurs, leaving 10 disparate souls on a lifeboat. Where did the notion for this idea, this plot, arise from in you? Well, uh, thank you for describing the plot so well. Uh, the truth is that for all of my books, I don't really start with plots. I start with a concept, and the concept was mm. asking for help. Uh, I, I've had to ask for help in my life, and I talk, I'm talking about big help, you know, when we want help from God yeah. or the universe. And uh, it seems to me that when we ask for help, we frequently expect it to arrive like we're ordering a deli sandwich, like better be here in five <laughs> minutes and it better be what I ordered and be very specific. <laughs> but I've lived long enough now to find out that help often doesn't look like what you expected it to look like or come when you expect it to come. And so this idea, I wanted to tell a story that could do that. And I said, well, what, what's the most desperate situation I could think of? A life raft out in the middle of the ocean, 10 people. Three days, nobody's coming for them. They're running out of food. They're running out of water. They see sharks, and they're calling out for help the way we all do. 
And then all of a sudden, they see this man floating in the water, a body, and they pull him in. It's this young guy, very nondescript, average-looking guy. They pepper him with questions. He doesn't talk. And finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And that becomes the fulcrum of the whole story. Yeah, no, and it, it, it's a shocking moment when, when that comes. What were you after there? I mean, obviously, it, it, it's to shock not only the, the characters in the, in the novel, but the reader. I mean, it, it, as you said, help sometimes comes not in the form you expected. Right. Well, I mean, you say, what was the, what was the point of that? I'll ask you, when, when you read that line, what was the first thought that came into your mind? Well, the first thought for me was, wait a minute, is this Jesus? Who is this guy? What, what, where did exactly. this come from? Is he, is he or isn't he? And that becomes the question. Mm -hmm. And here these are these people calling out for help, and yet they look at this guy and they say, oh, come on, you know, you're, you're not the Lord, you know, look at you. And, and he said, they say, if you're the Lord, what are you doing here? He says, well, haven't you been calling me? And then they say, well, so what, you're here? They're very cynical. They say, you think you're here to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everyone in this boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that sets up yeah. this, this, you know, this equation of like, well, if you want help, you're going to have to actually believe it might come in a form other than a big cruise ship that comes along and throws you a line or, or an airplane mm -hmm. that comes. It might actually be this guy. And most of them, of course, don't believe it. And as the days go on and things get more desperate and terrible things start happening, some of them change their mind. Mm -hmm. uh, Mitch, you have a talent in all your work for incorporating matters of faith uh, so seamlessly into the writing, and it really allows readers to be intrigued and ponder those difficult questions that I think we all, at some level, want to avoid. Uh, I want to read something from the end of the novel, uh, and it really speaks to what you were just talking about. In the end, there is the sea and the land and the news that happens between them. To spread that news, we tell each other stories. Sometimes the stories are about survival, and sometimes those stories, like the presence of the Lord, are hard to believe, unless believing is what makes them true. Now, that, that's so powerful. Um, in your estimation, have we lost belief? Have we as a people lost faith or the ability to see it? I, I, I think, Raymond, we've replaced it. Uh, we've replaced it in many cases with ourselves. We've replaced it with a culture that celebrates us and we can do everything. And, uh, you know, it's not an accident that church and synagogue and other religious affiliation of uh, uh, membership was steady throughout the whole 20th century, uh, right around 70 some percent. And then right around 2000, it started to sink. And right now it's about 47 percent, a massive drop. Well, what happened in 2000? The Internet. And suddenly we were able mm. to celebrate ourselves globally. We were able to tell people we have 300 million followers. Even, even think of that phrase, <laughs> followers. We've got followers. That's you right. know, that used to be reserved for, for pretty, pretty high-level people from the Bible who had followers. Right. And now we all have followers. And so 
I don't necessarily think we've lost belief because I see many people who get to the end of their lives, even lives that have been led very perhaps egotistically, and suddenly they get sick or something bad happens, and suddenly they're saying, please, God, help us. Please, God, help us, which is kind of the, one of the tenets mm-hmm. of the stranger in the lifeboat that, you know, how come you're always calling out for help only when you're only when things are really, really terrible? That's when you choose to believe. Right. But I do think we've substituted it with a culture of, of ego and um you know, that's why the guy in the book who throws the party is one of the richest men on the planet. He has everything he could mm-hmm. possibly want. And suddenly he's in a life raft with the cook and the deckhand and, uh, and and a guy who claims to be the Lord. And suddenly all his money and all his power don't make any kind of difference, even though he keeps Worthless. thinking, oh, they're going to come after me because I'm so important. They're going to come save me. But nobody does. Yeah, no, you wrote you wrote an excellent piece in the De- Detroit Free Press recently, and it was just about this, uh, the you know the loss of faith, the replacement of ego and social media. So I'm glad we we touched on that. And that piece is worth reading, by the way. I, I should tell the viewers, uh, there are two characters in the novel who are Haitian, Mitch, uh, which I found fascinating because I know the country of Haiti is dear to you. Uh, in fact, some of the earliest readers of this book were teenagers at the Have Faith Haiti Orphanage in Haiti. Uh, And you met a very special little girl named Chica uh, after the devastating earthquake in 2010 at that orphanage. Uh, You and your wife ended up adopting her. You wrote a book about it uh, called Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. Now, initially, your intention was not to adopt her. How has Chica changed your life? Well, in every way, Raymond. Uh, I went to Haiti in 2010 just as an observer, and within a couple of months, I had taken over an orphanage, which I now operate and I'm at every single month of my life. I have been for now 12 straight years. We have 54 children there that we raise and take care of from, from their earliest days all the way on up, all the way through college, and we put them through college. And Chica came to us uh, a couple of years into that. And uh, for a couple of years, she was the, the loudest, brashest, youngest kid we had. And then at age five, she developed a brain tumor. And we brought her to America uh, to try to find a cure for her, figuring we would, it wouldn't take any time at all. She was only five. How bad could it be? And it turned out she never went home. It was a terrible uh, stage four thing. And we ended up adopting her and traveling around the world for two years trying to find mm. a cure. And unfortunately, uh, nobody survives what she had. It's called DIPG. But she did live two years when they gave her four months. Mm. And those two years changed our lives in every single way. And really, I wrote the book Finding Chica kind of in the pain of after losing her. I wrote Stranger in the Lifeboat in the sort of healing after it. And I mentioned to you that one of the themes was asking for help. Well, you know, when, when Chica died... Uh, I was quite angry with the world and God, you know, and the whole idea about, you know, mm-hmm. how can you be a benevolent God and not be benevolent to a seven-year-old girl who had to endure an earthquake three days into her life, you know, and lost her mother and was an orphan, and, and now you give her a brain tumor and now she dies. Um, and there's a moment in the book where, if you read it, then you know that is, yeah. of course, it's a character in the book, but it is essentially me, where one of the characters mm-hmm. in, the, in the boat says to this Lord character, why do people have to die? And he's crying. He's talking about his wife. You know, why did you take my wife? And the response mm-hmm. is, uh, well, why is it that when people die on earth, we always say, why did God take them? Maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us? What did we do to deserve their sweetness, their love, their memories? Didn't you have that with your wife? And he said, well, I had it every day. 
And the Lord character says, well, those memories are a gift, but their absence is not a punishment. I'm not cruel. This world, I know you before you're born. I know you after you die. You, you, things don't begin and end with this world. I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you they're not crying. And I wrote mm. those sentences as much as a, as a salve for me uh, to try to get over the fact that, you know, okay, maybe, maybe Chica wasn't taken from us. Maybe she was given to us. My wife and I had her come into our lives when we were in our mid-50s. We had never had children of our own. We had wanted to. It was a prayer that we thought was unanswered at the time. Fifteen years later, here comes this beautiful five-year-old girl and gives us all the joy that you get of being parents and waking us up and asking us for breakfast and making jokes and you know laughing and giggling and singing and putting her hand over my mouth whenever I wanted to sing with her and all those kinds of things. And who are we to deserve that? in our 50s. So instead of suddenly saying, well, why did you take her away? Maybe the better question would be, thank you for giving us even the time that we had. And and mm -hmm. I hope that that's of a comfort to people who read The Stranger in the Lifeboat who have lost people in their own lives. Yeah, no, that, that you know, I was going to ask you, how did that experience with Chica shape you or prepare you to write uh, The Stranger in the Lifeboat? Because to me, it, it, it was, such, you know, I lost a few friends over the last few months, and some of them were very dear to me. And it did, it, it, it put those lives in perspective and the gratitude we should have, not only to God, but for each other. And I thought the book crystallizes that and so many other things. I, I was really touched by it, Mitch. What's been the reaction? I know you've been on tour. Uh, what are you hearing from people? Uh, this has actually been the most successful book uh, of my last four or five. Uh, it, uh, wow. and, and it's odd because you don't get to promote things quite the same way with COVID. <laughs> so I thought, well, yeah. you know, this, this is going to have to sort of sink and swim on its own because you can't go anywhere. You know, we're doing Zoom calls, mm -hmm. but uh, that's about it. But uh, it came out at number one on the New York Times list and the Amazon list, and it's, it's remained up high there ever since. And, and I'm, I'm so pleased because it reinforces the idea that, you know, faith and the idea of faith, and it's not a dogmatic book. It doesn't tell you you've got to believe no, this, that, or the other. But it certainly explores the idea of, of faith in God. And there are so many people who seem afraid to even touch that topic. I can tell you, Raymond, even the concept of writing this, there were a lot of people in the business that said, hey, maybe you want to try something. I said, no, uh -huh. I, I, you know, I, I live out in the Midwest and everybody here says, God bless you. And then people say, well, God bless you back, you know, no matter where, no matter right. what they might feel. And, and I think there are a lot more people like that in America than maybe some of the coasts tend to kind of view it as like, no, we, we, we have to stay away from anything that could have to do with faith because that might offend somebody. Uh, I, I, I think there's still a lot of people who want to believe that we are not just here to be worm food at the end of our lives and, and want to explore mm -hmm. those ideas. So I was, I was thrilled with the reception. I, I am still, it continues to be very strong. Yeah, no, Mitch, I, I think you've tapped into the reality that there are a lot of people seeking, there are a lot of people hurting and asking the same questions we all ask. And I love that this book points people to, the, to some answers and gives them a sense of calm and peace uh, when it's over. So thank you for writing it. Thanks for coming on. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. I've, I've long loved your books and your columns. Thank so thanks. You. Uh, the Stranger in the Lifeboat, the new novel by Mitch Album, is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Help keep it number one. Thanks, Mitch. We'll have you on again, I hope. You're welcome. Thank you. Sure. <laughs>
Before we go, I have some wonderful news I wanted to share. As many of you know, our Lenten preparation here in New Orleans is called Mardi Gras. And I received a huge honor this week from the crew of Endymion. This was a bit of their coronation ball. We would like to introduce you to our Grand Marshal for this year's parade. He is a native of the city of New Orleans. He is a New York Times best-selling author. He's a Fox News analyst. And he is the EWTN News managing editor. And I might add, he's also a Brother Martin High School grad. Please welcome Raymond Arroyo. Thank you, Mark. Hey, guys, what look. Nobody parties better than New Orleanians. I've been telling everybody this. I want to thank Dan and Daryl and all of you. I am so looking forward to showing the country what true joy and partying and love looks like. I love you, Endymion. I cannot wait. <laughs> it was a double honor for me to be named the Grand Marshal of the crew of Endymion this year. You know, Endymion's the largest Mardi Gras parade uh, in New Orleans. But the announcement in the Times-Picayune made my day. This is it. Uh, the picture, which I had nothing to do with at the top of the article, featured Mother Angelica and me. So that was a nice little tip of the hat from Mother. Uh, and it was great to share the coronation ball and the announcement, of course, with, with my wife, Rebecca. And we roll on February 26th, the Saturday before Mardi Gras. The parade is open to everybody. I hope those nearby will come join us. I'll throw you a cup and some beads, maybe a few doubloons. It's one of the largest free parties anywhere. The Endymion Parade is always spectacular, so beautiful. So happy Mardi Gras. I hope you come down and see us. And that is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.